Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 2 Thessalonians. Again, in 2 Thessalonians, we'll pick up here in verse 13. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 5 together. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Let's pray once again. Father, we pause here now and look to your word, and we thank you for it, Lord. And we ask that you'd bless our time of study in it. Uh, Be with us here tonight, Lord, we pray, as as we know that you are. Uh, But in a way, Lord, that you'd speak to us and encourage us, Lord, because we we desperately need it. Uh, We need more of you and a greater understanding of your word, and we ask for it now, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we've come to this place, and again, this letter, uh, as, as you've well noted, is, is a shorter letter. Uh, this is a follow-up, or a sequel, if you will, to the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, if you recall, and I know I've mentioned this many times, but it's important for us to understand that this particular church was established by the Apostle Paul on one of his missionary journeys, and he was unable to spend much time at all with his church. Uh, we think probably in total only about three weeks. And so uh, it was a short period of time, but the Lord did an incredible work as he established this church. And in that short period of time, he taught them a great deal. Uh, there was quite a bit that Paul covered with this church. He delved into many different areas, and he's referenced that in both of these letters as he continues to remind them, I told you this, I taught you this. Uh, the fact that they have some of the questions that they do helps us to realize that Paul really went deep with them. But the reason Paul had to leave so quickly was because persecution started to come into the area. The work that Paul was doing there with Timothy and with Silas was uh, creating quite a, a stir. And Paul saw fit to leave the area in an attempt to try and minimize the persecution that was going to be experienced by the church there. Nevertheless, as he departed, persecution continued. And because of the things that Paul had taught them, specifically about the end times, about how things would grow worse, persecution would increase uh, against the church, but also specifically that there would come a time where the church would be raptured, where the tribulation would enter in, where there would be a time of great suffering that would come upon people on the earth, uh, which would then be followed by Jesus' glorious second coming, the battle of Armageddon, and the establishment of the millennial reign. All of these things he dived into with them, but because of uh, the explanation in particular of the suffering that was going to come upon people, And now that they too were experiencing persecution, 
And then there was false teaching that was coming into the area suggesting that uh, the rapture had already happened, that they had uh, missed it in effect, or that they were now going through the period of the tribulation. And so they, they were concerned. They, they were lacking some understanding as to what was happening, and they were feeling as if they might need to be preparing themselves for things to get considerably worse. Based off of what Paul had shared with them, and, and we don't know exactly what he told them, but assuming he gave them a very clear understanding of the end times, uh, knowing what we know from Daniel as well as from Revelation, he explained to them that the tribulation, the time of the tribulation on this earth, was going to be, like Jesus said, something like no one had ever experienced before. Nothing like that would have ever happened on the face of the earth before, and so they were bracing themselves thinking, my goodness, if we're in the tribulation, this is going to get really hard. And so Paul learns this, right? And he then, in the first letter, explains to them what's going to happen. We know also there in the first letter, he's addressing the fact that uh, some people have died and they were concerned. Well, what about those that have died? Are they going to be raptured uh, with the rest of the church? And Paul gives them understanding of that. And he follows up on it further in this second letter. He wants that because he knows that they're still struggling to understand some of these things, he writes to them again, and uh, he encourages them. And then in chapter 2, he shares with them more detail about that particular time. And so uh, we studied this last week as we considered in chapter 2 more of the specifics of the tribulation, the time of the tribulation, as well as the coming of the Antichrist. Now remember, the Antichrist is a key figure during the time of the tribulation. Uh, the Antichrist is em empowered by uh, Satan, and he is used. He is, a, he, he is someone who is used to accomplish different things during that period of time. But that will only happen. The Antichrist will be revealed after the rapture of the church. And so it's important if I were to summarize anything from chapter 2 last week, and if you want to go back and listen to that and get more details around the tribulation, um, you can go ahead and do that. But one of the things that I would emphasize is, is it, Paul says there's, there's two key things that really need to happen. Uh, one, a significant falling away, uh, meaning a, 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 a rebellion against God. And then two, the revealing of the Antichrist. And those are the things that will mark the beginning of the tribulation. And of course, that comes after the rapture of the church. So it's important for us to recognize here that we don't know who the Antichrist is nor will we know who the Antichrist is, with the exception, of course, of knowledge that's given to us when we are with Christ in the throne room of heaven. Okay, And so a lot of people want to talk about who's the Antichrist. And Listen, you don't know. You don't know who the Antichrist is. You just don't. <laughs> um, is the Antichrist around today? Maybe. If, 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 Jesus, if, if his return for his church is soon... We certainly believe it's imminent, but if it's soon in terms of just around the corner, uh, at any moment, today, tomorrow, whatever, well then yes, maybe the Antichrist is alive and, and working, but we don't know who that is. And they will be revealed once the church is gone. And so the emphasis that I would really draw our attention back to from last week is we shouldn't be looking for those events. We shouldn't be looking for the Antichrist. We shouldn't be looking for the great apostasy. We shouldn't be looking for different indicators of the tribulation. We should be looking to Christ. We should be looking for Jesus. That's the next thing for us. It's Jesus. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus all the time, every day. That's what we should be looking for. It's who, it is him who we should be looking to. Now, here's what I recognize. All the talk of this stuff, the end times, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, uh, combine that with all the different things that are going on in our world today, in our country today, in our community today, this can all be a bit overwhelming. 
the intention for us, if we study Scripture, and one of the reasons why we went to these letters is because Paul, of course, says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things, brethren. So we know that as believers, we're to have a good understanding of these things. If you were going to go on a trip, wouldn't you want to know where you were going? I mean, some people like to be surprised every now and then by a little bit of a trip. But for the most part, we want to know where we're going, what we're doing. If you were going, if you knew that you were planning for a, a lifelong journey, <laughs> that you were going to spend eternity in a particular place, you would want to ready yourselves. You would want to understand. You would want to know where you're going. You would, you would say, give me the brochure. Is there a pool? Is there a good buffet? We want to know these things. Well, what about your eternity, right? You, you, you want to know. And so we shouldn't be ignorant of the end times. We should know. We should understand. We should anticipate. We should know in light of the end times, what are we called to? How should we live our lives? That's been much of our study here is, is how do we live our lives in light of his soon return? So Paul says that, but he also says, comfort one another, encourage one another. Everything that he has shared with them about the end times is intended to be comfort to them. In large part, because of their concern that things are going to get worse, he says, you don't need to worry. You're not going to be here for some of these things. Jesus is coming for you. And so I fully recognize, and I've said it many times, that I know the talk of end times for many people is difficult. It creates a level of anxiety, oftentimes in those who are younger. Because when we're younger, there are many things that we're looking forward to in life that are still ahead of us, and we can think, boy, I really want to experience this, I want to know this. And then you've got all these old grumpy adults, right, who've said, been there, done that, I want to go home, come Jesus, come, right? And that's, I mean, let's just be honest, right? And so I get it, I understand it. Nobody needs to feel bad about that, but we should be working to say, Lord, I want to be excited for this. I do want this to comfort me. And I will tell you, I mean, even look here in the Word. Again, Paul in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, because he wants to give them understanding, spends 12 verses talking about apostasy, a falling away, talking about the lawless one, the working of Satan on this earth. And he gives them that information. And as soon as he gives them information, he quickly just shifts back again to, but let's focus on encouragement here for you as the church. As he comes then again into verse 13, he says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. As much as he says here, here's, here, I'm going to give you an understanding of the events which are to come, he's going to immediately bring their attention, and he's going to bring our attention back to the fact that you have a God in heaven, he chose you. He chose you. He has sanctified you. He's setting you apart. He is working. I had a conversation with someone earlier today, and I said, listen, I know that there are a lot of things going on out there, and I have a lot of opinions about those things. And I certainly think about some of the different things we're seeing in the news on a daily basis, seeing things in our community on a daily basis. And, and yes, am I willing to say that these things trouble me, that these things concern me, that these things bother me? Absolutely. But in the midst of it all, I am increasingly mindful of the fact that I serve a God who is seated on the throne. That He is above all things. That He is unchangeable. He is immovable. That He loves us. That He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He is superior above all of these things. And He is not surprised by a single thing that's happening in our world today. And it's that same God, as Paul says here, who chose you. He chose you. 
He sanctified you. From the beginning, He chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I mean, let's consider for a moment the incredible passage of Scripture that Paul also writes in the letter to the church in Ephesus, this church he loves so much. In Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 1-10, through 10, he says, In you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. In effect, he says, like he was talking about with the Thessalonians there, that, 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 that you were once a part of that. You were once a part of the world. But God, in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy... That is, he, He's not giving us what it is that we deserve because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so it's His mercy not giving us what it is that we deserve and in His grace giving us things that we don't deserve unmerited favor, and He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And verse 7 really alludes to the fact that uh, you think God has been good to you so far, you ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. In verse 8, For by grace, once again, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship. You are His work of art. You are His poem. You, he, he looks at you and He sees something wonderful. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, and so now He's using your life for a positive purpose, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, meaning that He does, in fact, have a plan and a purpose for your life. And so no matter what's going on in the world today, you can sit back and say, man, I've got a dad who is on the throne and he knows me and he loves me and he's created me for a purpose and those purposes are still yet to be fulfilled, which means he's still got things for me to do. And Paul will go on to address this here as he basically says there in the beginning of chapter three that he's going to protect you. He's going to guard you against the attacks of the enemy. And so he goes on in verse 14 to say, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see something that's happening here in verses 13 and 14. He says, but we are bound to give thanks to God, always for you, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and the belief in truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see right there that he gives us the Trinity again? He says the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work in your life. There ought to be for you much encouragement here, even in two verses about what is at work in you and through you. In verse 15, he says, Therefore, because of this, brethren, stand fast. Stand fast. Hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. What is Paul saying there? He says, whether I wrote it to you or whether I spoke it to you, hold fast to it. Stick with it. What's the implication for us today? Listen, stand fast and hold to Scripture. Don't back down from it. Look to it. Trust in it. Uphold it. And then he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts. He didn't say bless your heart. He said comfort your heart. This is the good kind, okay? He said, may he encourage you. 
May He strengthen you. May He establish you in every good word and work. You see, friends, we've got to listen to this today. Because, listen, I got to the place over this last week where I found myself kind of going, man, I, I think I'm tired. <laughs> you ever been there before? Where it's like, well, I don't know that I'm really tired, but I'm, but I'm tired. I just feel like I can't do it right now. You know that feeling? And so I know there's a lot that's been going on, guys. And, and even when some of us think, maybe it hasn't been that bad, you know, yeah, there's stuff going on, but we're okay. And, and then we just don't realize how much stuff has just really graded on you, worn you down. But we need to be encouraged. We need to be strengthened. We need to take heart. We need to go, man, yes, things have been difficult. But I have a God who loves me, who's seated on the throne. He chose me. He's at work in me. He's putting all of His resources into me. Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all working on me, working through me and in me. And we need to stand fast. We need to take heart. You know, the prophet Jeremiah, he ministered in a tough time. You don't read the book of Jeremiah and go, what? That made me feel good. Wow. (laughs) You know, I want that life. No, not at all. Jeremiah had a lot to say and a whole lot of people that wouldn't listen. And in Jeremiah in chapter 6, he begins, the, he begins that, that section by basically saying, you're all going to be destroyed. It's a feel-good message of the day. And he says in verse 16, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But of course, he goes on to say, but they said, we will not walk in it. And so they found no rest. You see, he gives us an incredible insight right there for those who want rest for their souls. Because again, I I found myself feeling tired and feeling a little worn down and feeling like, Lord, I just need rest. But then you also come to that place where you go, but it doesn't feel like it's sort of, I'll go take a nap and everything will be okay kind of rest, right? You have this reality, this thought that, I don't know that a lot of this is going away. But yet, Lord, you tell me I'm to be comforted, I'm to be encouraged, I'm to be strengthened. But Lord, I don't, I don't feel like I can do it right now if we're being honest and you talk out loud, right? But then he brings you back to the fact that all you who are heavy laden need of rest. Right? He tells us to come to him to take His yoke upon us. And we'll find rest when we do that, right? Remember, when we studied that passage, remember, God's not calling us to come and just stop and to just sit down and never do anything again. The implication is is we're taking His yoke upon us is that we're continuing to work, but we're working with Him in such a way where the burden suddenly becomes light, where we can continue to do the things that we're supposed to do, but yet it feels different because we've got God pulling it with us, right? And here he says, he's speaking through the prophet, ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. It's right here, guys. You see, in our world today, we needn't look for anything new. There's no new answer for us. There's nothing that we need to try and figure out today. We've got to look at old paths. We've got to look at old ways and begin to walk in them. And when we do, we find rest for our souls. It's right here. It's right here. And Paul understood that. 
As he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, finally, brethren, pray for us. Why? That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. You see, Paul shows us here that he is depending on the word. He is dependent on the Lord. He is dependent on them to to pray for him. In fact, as he says, pray for us, it's in the present tense in the Greek, which means this is an ongoing act. He's, He's asking them, continue to pray for me. I need your prayers on an ongoing basis. Why? So that the word can go forth. So that the word would run swiftly and be glorified because Paul understood the power of the word. We need to be praying for that today. We often say, it's a bit cliche within the church to say, we need revival today. And for us to say the things that we're dealing with in the world today, it's a sin issue and it's only the gospel. Uh, it's only the word of God that will, that will bring the transformation. And those things are true. And I say they're cliche because oftentimes we just say it, but are we praying for it? Are we really seeking the Lord for it? Are we believing that, yes, if we do this, the change that we seek will come? Paul knew it, and so he said, pray for us. The word's got to go forth. And there's a spiritual battle that's being waged out there. Rest assured, when you turn on the news, you see people fighting flesh against flesh, right? But that's not what's happening. It's a spiritual war that's being waged. And we've got to see it for what it is. And we've got to pray that the word would go forth. He goes on to say in verse 2, and that, so this is the second part of his prayer. He says, pray that the word would go forth and pray that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. Other translations may say, because not all are believers. This may seem like the most obvious statement that Paul makes in his letter, but it's just the reminder that, listen, we live in a fallen world. Not everyone is a believer. Not everyone has faith. And so pray for our protection. What we can appreciate here is the fact that as much encouragement as Paul provides them with, he's also very real with them. Listen, we live in a bad world. There's going to be tough situations. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be people who who are evil. Pray for us that we be delivered from them and protected. But then, of course, as Paul often does, he here he gives them, here's the reality of what we're facing, but then he brings it back again in verse 3, but the Lord, he says. There may be those without faith, but the Lord is faithful. And so again, we've got to look at these things tonight, and we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to encourage our hearts and to say, yes, the Lord is faithful. Just as I prayed as we were concluding our time of praise and worship to say, sometimes we, we sing those songs, but do you really believe it? Do you trust in it? When we're, when we're reading Scripture, when we're studying Scripture, and we come to these verses, we need to be reminded and to say, yes, I believe it. To say it in your heart, yes, the Lord is faithful. I believe that. But the Lord is faithful, who, being the Lord, will establish you. So He'll establish you. He'll strengthen your foundation. He'll guard you from the evil one. So here's this reminder for Paul saying, listen, He's going to do this work in you. And so for us today, as we consider all that's happening, we need to be reminded God is faithful. Once again, look at all these things that are going on, but God, you're faithful. And you're guarding us from the evil one. Furthermore, in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. And this is Paul speaking then to the church, both that you do and will do the things we command you. So now, what's beginning to happen here? As Paul is now shifting gears a little bit, and he's ready, and before he finishes the letter here, he's going to give them a little bit of a challenge. 
And now here he's greasing the skids, if you will, to say, I trust that you're going to be obedient. You're going to do what I've asked you to do. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. And so here what he's recognizing is, is you need to be obedient. You need to receive this. And so if you want these things, the implication here, Christian, if you want these things, you've got to receive it and you've got to be obedient to it. No differently than what the prophet Jeremiah said there. Here are the old ways. Walk in them and you'll find rest for your soul. But sadly, the people said, no, we won't do it. And so destruction comes upon them. The same is true for us today. You want peace, you want the confidence that God is working in you and working for you, then you need to be willing to receive His exhortation and obey it. So He's preparing them for this exhortation that He's going to provide. And He says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, one, and into the patience of Christ. Two things here that He mentions. He says, basically here, as He says, direct your hearts into the love, He's saying, may He give you an even deeper understanding of His love for you, and of the endurance that you have in knowing Christ. And this really speaks to sanctification. As you come to know Him more and allow Him to work in your life and set you apart, may you have a deeper understanding of those things. And so then in verse 6, he jumps into the, the exhortation to them. And I'll go ahead and read through for a few verses here. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. What Paul's dealing with here, and he had seen this evidently when he was there amongst them, he addressed it in his first letter to them, and he's gotten word, apparently, that... uh, Uh, It's not gotten any better, and so now he's going to be a bit more direct in his command as well as the consequence uh, or the action that they're to take if this is not obeyed. Again, Paul has said, I'm going to trust that you will do (laughs) and will do the things that we command you, and now he's giving them some specific instruction. You can rest assured here that Paul has grown impatient with some of the people in this area. And so now he's bringing an aspect of accountability, and he says, but. Sometimes he says, but God, and we're encouraged by it. Here, when he says, but, it's sort of like, "Uh uh-oh, Paul's not happy. But we command you. Need he be any clearer? There's not much pleasantry going on here. He's not veiling his request. He's not saying, if you feel like it, it, if the mood suits you. He's saying, we command you, brethren, And now he's pulling out the big guns by doing what? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So now he's appealing to the authority of Christ that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. What Paul is saying here is, if you've got somebody in the church that's being a problem and not adhering to Scripture, distance yourself from them the first form of physical distancing. (laughs) Why? 
because they're going to create more and more issues in the church. And so he's frustrated here, and he's saying, listen, if they're being a problem, if they're creating disruption, if they're not holding to the tradition, which means if they're not doing what I've taught you, then you need to withdraw yourself from them. You need to not be around them. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, Paul says, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. Now that may sound a little odd. What is he talking about eating people's bread? We'll understand that here. But we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. And so what Paul's saying here is, I was with you for a short period of time, and because of the things that I saw going on there, the things that I knew about people, I wanted to make sure that I was an example to you. Fact is, Paul recognizes, I absolutely, because of the work that we did there, could have expected you guys to care for me. I could have expected you to feed us and to do different things to it for us while we were there. But he said, I wanted to be an example. And he wanted to be an example because there were some people who were abusing this. He says, for even when we were with you, again, verse 10, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So we have to understand here that there was a problem. Now, some people suggest that the problem of people not working was because they were so convinced that Jesus was quickly coming that they just kind of said, well, we don't need to worry about anything in this life. And that's likely true. There had to have been some people there that were thinking, listen, if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, I'm not going to work in the morning, right? And we can kind of understand that. There's times when many of you probably feel the same way. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. I'm calling in, I'm calling in rapture tomorrow, right? Not going to be there. Just going to wait patiently at home. I'm ready, Lord, I'm ready. But that's not how we're called to live. We don't know. We don't know when that time will come, Right? And so we've got to be about the Lord's business, we've got to be serving, and we've got to be working. People who want to say, oh, work is just a curse. No, work was cursed, but it, work was, what, what was Adam created to do? Work in the garden. He was, he, Adam was a farmer. So those farmers out there, they're like, yes, the farming is next to godliness. You're right. <laughs> You're right. He was created to work. Because of the fall, his work got harder, okay? But we're not, we're not called to not work. We're not called to just vacation. A Sabbath's rest is what? One day, right? One day. Now, here's the thing. We don't do a good job of a Sabbath's rest. We don't do a very good job of that at all. And that's why I think we struggle a little bit more with work because we're not rested the way that we're supposed to be. Okay? It's a vicious cycle. But here he's, rec he, he's recognizing that there weren't people that were wanting to work. And he gives, I mean, I can only imagine Paul and the way he was feeling and the way he communicated here is, is he doesn't just say that he was writing in this in this letter. He said, no, nah, I told you this when I was there. If anyone will not work, you don't eat. Man, I wanted to see him hold somebody accountable to that. And they mosey on in for dinner, right? Just being lazy all day. And he's like, nope, get out. You're not eating. Because he wanted them to understand we've got we've to work. If the Lord tarries in his return, we are to be about working for him, for his glory, Colossians 3.23, and everything that you do, do it is unto the Lord, not unto man, and, be, and get to work. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, okay, they're, they're not handling themselves properly, they're not working at all, Scripture says, but are busybodies, which the implication there means that they're meddling in everybody else's stuff. And so what happens then? 
Those of you who have ever been in some sort of teamwork environment, a manufacturing environment, and you got somebody who's a busybody, not only are they not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but what's happening? They're slowing everybody else down. They're disrupting everything. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, or he emphasizes it again, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. What's Paul saying? Get to work and be quiet. Get to work and be quiet. He dealt with this in the first letter again. He's saying live a, pe- a quiet and peaceable life. This is biblical for us. And now in particular in this time, I find it interesting because we've gone through a period of a few months now where people haven't been able to work, at least not much. And I'm not suggesting that everything that's happening in our culture today is a product of this, but I do think there's a whole lot of busybody going on right now. I won't go into my whole social media tirade that I went through last week, but the amount of stuff that I see on social media tells me people aren't working. People aren't doing other things. If you've got enough time to put the stuff out on social media that you're putting out on social media, you need to be quiet and eat your own bread. Right? Just get to work. Do what the Lord has called you to do. And so this absolutely has application for us today within the context of how do we live in light of Christ's return. Be disciplined. Work. Work hard. Work for Him. Be an example. Now he says in verse 13, But as for you, brethren... Do not grow weary in doing good. So now he, he's bringing it back now to those who are doing the right thing within the church because oftentimes we can find ourselves saying, and this is just an analogy based off of the letter, right? But man, I'm working hard, but they're not. Or I'm, I'm pushing hard, or I'm doing this, or I'm sacrificing here, but, it, but they're not. And then somebody's giving them bread, right? And he's saying, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep it up. Go back to what he had said earlier. Stand fast. Endure. He prayed, right, that, that their hearts would be established in every good word and work, that they would um, have a greater understanding of his love and the endurance that they have in Christ. And so he's saying, don't grow weary in this. And so for us, too, we're not to grow weary, church. We're to continue on. We're to press on. And if anyone, now he brings it back to the consequence here, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, Note that person, that is, identify him, and do not keep company with him. Why? So that he may be ashamed. And you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. This is biblical discipline. There is to be accountability, okay? And here's the other implication here. He's not addressing pastors. He's not said to the leader of the church. He is talking to the church as a whole. This is the entire church that he's recognizing here. And he's saying there needs to be consequences. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be discipline within the church. Sadly today, I think for a number of different reasons, uh, much of which is about churches that are very large and maybe not able to manage the large church, have shied away from biblical forms of discipline. And that's not just in the large church, but I think that's a big part of what's contributed to that. Now, some large churches are able to do it because they've got a really good structure for how elders in particular handle different parts of the church. But I feel like we've really, and, and you go to the seeker-friendly movement and the just we don't want to talk about these kind of things. We don't want people to be uncomfortable. We don't want a tither to leave the church. And, you know, any, any number of things have caused people to say, yeah, we're just going to kind of shy away from any form of church discipline. 
But that's directly contrary to Scripture, not only based off of what we see here, but elsewhere. Say, for example, in, um, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 5, there was a whole lot of discipline that needed to be happening there, but they had just sort of grown accustomed to it. They'd grown immune to the sin and the things that were happening within the church. But Paul writes to them also in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, I think in verses 4 and 6, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that what? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul was saying, listen, you've got to deal with sin when it's in the body. Because if you don't, it's going to affect everybody. Or elsewhere, a, a, you know, a passage that we often turn to for a great example of church discipline that we see in Matthew 18. And that Matthew 18 process, which gives us a very clear understanding of how we are to approach people when they are sinning. Moreover, Matthew 18, verse 15 and following, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There Jesus is saying, here's how you're to deal with this. Well, we've lost too many aspects of church discipline within the church, and it's, it's unfortunate because, again, the, the primary impact of that is a weaker body as a whole. And Paul here is saying, listen, if, if they're doing this, you need to not keep company with them but to do it in a way where they're ashamed so they, they recognize and they go, okay, so hopefully they come to a place, go back to Sunday's message of confession, contrition, and conversion, and they come to a place, they go, okay, this isn't okay. I'm missing the fellowship. I miss my friends. I want to be in fellowship with them. And so Paul says, yet do not count him as an enemy. So they're not saying, they're, they're not saying hey, you need to treat them like an enemy, but rather admonish him as a brother. Why? In the hopes of reconciliation. That when that person does come to a place of, of confession and contrition, you can say, hey, I forgive you and come back into the fellowship here. And so Paul wants them to understand that. That's really the last key thing that he's closing out this letter with. And it's interesting because, of course, he's been addressing many different things, especially uh, aspects of the end times. But he's not going to miss the opportunity to deal with something that's happening within that church. And we've got to take that to heart. But now, as he uh, does consistently, he brings it from there back to a place of encouragement once again, and it should be encouragement to us. As he says in verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now this is Paul's fourth prayer for them in this short letter. This is the fourth time. Now Paul, we know, is this guy who prays without ceasing, right? And I often think this is the way in which he does that. Uh, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can pray without ceasing. With Paul, I think we just see that he's constantly got this attitude of prayer, constantly commending people to the Lord, uh, lifting people up, praying specific things for people. And so this is his fourth prayer here in this short letter, and he says again, now may the Lord of peace himself. Now, there's other times in Scripture where we see a ministering angel come to someone and encourage them, right? But here Paul's saying, may the Lord himself encourage you. May he give you peace always in every way. What does always mean in the Greek? Always. How about every way? Every way. It means all of it. May the Lord himself give you peace in every aspect of your life. He's been talking about 
the rapture of the church, the time of the tribulation, the Antichrist, a great falling away, terrible tribulation, suffering, persecution. He's been talking about all those things and he begins to close and he says, may the Lord himself give you peace. So listen, we're not to feel as believers, it's not that we should feel necessarily a sense of conviction, certainly not condemnation, if we find within ourselves a lack of peace, particularly during this time. But we should say, but I'm supposed to be at peace. So what do I need to do? If you are one who is struggling, you're dealing with anxiety, you're dealing with fear, you're dealing with whatever it may be, again, not from a place of condemnation, but from a place of evaluation to say, why am I feeling this way? Why am I struggling in this way? I should be at peace. I want that peace which surpasses all understanding, which guards the hearts and minds of those who are in Christ Jesus. I want that. And so then taking that to the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, minister to me in that way. Lord, I want to be at peace. And allow the Lord to search your heart and then maybe to reveal to you things that are in your life. Certainly, if there's uh, an aspect of habitual sin in your life, well, that's going to bring disruption. That's going to disrupt fellowship with the Lord. Uh, If you're not spending time in prayer, if you're not spending time in His Word, well, then that's going to begin to, He's going to reveal those things to you, and that's going to be your answer. Because the more we spend time pursuing Him, the more we spend in His Word, it's an input-output thing, right? So if you're focused more on looking at all the things that are going on in the world, considering the things in the world, forgetting if even momentarily, that you have a God in heaven who chose you, who's at work, who's still on the throne, well, then you're going to be prone to fear. You're going to be prone to anxiety. But if you remember the things, whether anywhere in Scripture, but especially in this letter that Paul is sharing with this church, and you go to his word, well, then you should begin to feel that peace which surpasses all understanding and know, okay, Lord, you've got this. Listen, I'm not a sovereigntist. We've talked about this many times. I take a balanced view of God's sovereignty. I believe that we see in Scripture sovereignty. We see, we see providence. We see free will. It's, it's all there. I would never pretend to be able to explain it all. And so while I don't take a sovereigntist view, which is really about extreme sovereignty, right? Which, I mean, if you take it to the nth degree, means that if I decide right now to walk out that door and trip down the steps, that I really didn't decide it, right? It's the will of the Lord, right? Like... I don't go to that extreme. I don't think that's how that all works. But I can tell you that there is no greater encouragement to me on a daily basis than knowing that I have a sovereign God who is seated on the throne. That if I seek to just follow him and surrender my life to him, that Lord, you are in control. That I literally, I do not need to worry about a thing. Oh, but how often I pull things back and I say, I'm going to take that and I'm going to worry about it. (laughs) Right? Every day I grab things and I worry about it. And worry is one of the most foolish things we can do because we spend all this emotional energy on something that hasn't happened. And we convince ourselves that it might happen, and so we should worry. But it hasn't happened. That's insanity. Right? That's literal insanity. Right? I mean, it is. I mean, that's, that's insanity. Yeah, but it might. It might, it might, it might, but it hasn't, but it might. Well, how about we go ahead and operate it under the truth that it hasn't? <laughs> And then maybe, yes, maybe the the potential causes us to do something. That's where wisdom comes in. That's where preparation comes in. That's where prayer comes in. So that we can have that peace and to go, okay, Lord, I've done what I can do. And that's the right thing, and to give it to Him. The Lord be with you all, He says. And, And, you know, I'm mindful of 
one of the Psalms. In Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I'm begin to close on this. A song of ascents is it's often said in, in these psalms, and we don't know this for sure, but that a song of ascent was was a song that was sung by the Jewish people as they made their pilgrimage to the temple, and that as they came to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being a city on a hill, and as they looked up and they saw the temple, that their rejoicing would become even greater. Because remember, at that particular time, and sadly even still today for the Jewish people, there's a sense of that's where the presence of God is. And so at that particular time, yes, the presence of the Lord was dwelling there in the temple and they were coming and they they came to rejoice and they came for sacrifice. And so as they're coming in, they look up and they see the temple and the presence of God. And it says in Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. That is the God that you serve, Christian. He never sleeps. Our all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God never sleeps on the job. When you go to sleep tonight and you make yourself vulnerable in that way, right? you do everything you can to secure yourself in, but inevitably you're going to close your eyes right? and you're going to trust in the Lord. And you can know that He's not asleep. He's watching. He's caring. He's protecting you. Now you may say, yeah, but bad things still happen. People still get hurt atrocities happen. Yes, they do. What is our hope in? That's the amazing thing. To be absent in body is to be present with the Lord. And so that's unbeatable. When our hope is truly in the Lord to know that, yes, for as long as he has me in this life, knowing that it's been appointed a man once to die, he knowing that day that he will guard me, he will care for me. Whatever purposes he has created me for, he will ensure that those are fulfilled. That's why oftentimes I struggle when you know, people say, and, and again, I don't pretend to have all the answers on this, but a lot of times when somebody dies, right, we say, oh man, it was well before their time. Well, was it? Was it before their time? No, because we serve a sovereign God. Now, is there evil in this world? Yes, but he has overcome that. And so we've got to trust in that. We've got to hope in that. He keeps us covered. The sun won't touch you. The moon won't touch you. The implication there is he says, I've got you. He'll preserve you and preserve your soul. Paul then closes and says in verses 17 and 18, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so what Paul's saying there is he, he, he finished the letter. He wrote it out in the end in his own hand, and so it was likely much larger in print because of his poor eyesight and uh, no different than a signature today. People could look at it and say that came from Paul. And this was particularly important that Paul did this because, remember, people were circulating letters suggesting that they were him saying things that were false. And so Paul really wanted them to know, this one's from me, guys. And so I want you to be encouraged. As he says, the grace of our Lord, remember, unmerited favor, a gift which we don't deserve but because he loves us, he gives it to us anyway. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We need to be encouraged, friends. 
yeah, we live in some troubling times. But I'll say what I said at the beginning. The Lord is not surprised. He's still on the throne. He loves you. He's chosen you. He's at work. Let's trust Him in that. Let's rejoice in that. That's how we have that joy, <laughs> that unspeakable joy, that joy that causes people to say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you should be upset right now. You should be sad right now. But no, when, we are, when our perspective is right, we go, man, I serve, I serve a God who's on the throne. He's got me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pause once again here this evening, and Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that comes to us through your word. And yes, the accountability also. Lord, may we take to heart the exhortation that was given to this young church, that we too, Lord, ought to be at work. And, and yes, there's a very specific application there for those who, who need to be uh, more disciplined, not lazy. Uh, none of us are to be, Lord. But, but even beyond that, Lord, for all of us, to take to heart, Lord, what it, what it is that we're doing each day, that we should be about your business, that if you tarry and you return, Lord, that means there's more for us to do. And, and so, Lord, help each of us to recognize, Lord, what it is that you've gifted us in, what you've called us to, Lord, that we could be about it, that we could be bringing you glory, Lord, through um, your working in our lives. <clears throat> but beyond that, Lord, also, we just hold on to the encouragement that we're given in this word. Uh, Lord, it's not lost on you the times in which we are living. Uh, but Lord, help us to be a people that in the midst of it all have great joy. That that serves, Lord, to be a, a, an example to others, Lord, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our church here, Lord, that we would remember daily, Lord, who you are, what it is that you've done for us, the promises, Lord, that you have for us that are yet even still to be fulfilled, that we would hope in that, that we'd trust in that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be moved, Lord, then by circumstances, but that we'd stand fast and uh, that we'd uphold your word. And, and Lord, that we would uh, make much of you in our community. Father, we love you and we praise you. We give you thanks for our time together tonight, Lord. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.